Hey, it's your fellow revolutionary, Jason Vreeke, and these are Tales of the Revolution. We tell stories to encourage encounters with the real Jesus of Nazareth, who came to change your life, to make those who are dead alive. This episode will be the first in a series of episodes concerning deception. I'm calling this one Crucial Deception. Our first storyteller is Matt Sliman, also known as Crucial. He is a hip-hop artist and producer based in North Carolina's Charlotte area. His story is nothing less than revolutionary. My name is Matthew Sliman, a.k.a. Crucial. Crucial is my stage name. I am a hip-hop, Christian-based rap artist. been working in the Christian music industry on a more professional level for uh, roughly 12, 13 years now. That entails a lot, and I've been very blessed to uh, have been able to, you know, do a good little bit of traveling and speaking and concerts, varying from youth functions, youth rallies, conferences, festivals, block parties, even, you know, prisons and retreats, urban outreaches, and you name it. Very blessed to uh, have been a part of a lot of those types of events over the years and to, to be able to take the, the musical gifts and talents that the Lord has given me to give glory to Him honor him, honor him with my life and, and with those gifts and those talents. And from a musical standpoint, I've always been involved with music, even since I was a little kid. I started out playing the piano. I learned how to play the piano at a very early age. I started composing my own piano music when I was 10, 11 years old. I took up other various instruments from clarinet, saxophone, bass guitar, electric guitar. Uh, I just always really enjoyed music, various genres and styles of music. Hip-hop is just, you know, rap music is one of those things that I feel like you can incorporate all kinds of different genres and styles into. But again, you know, just to, to get back to the main point of that, you know, I noticed at a very young age that, that, that music was something, that a talent that God had given me. But I didn't really start using it in, to, to glorify Him until my adult life. And you know, just to kind of give you the, the long and short with my childhood, I mean, you know, I feel like I've always known the Lord. You know, I prayed even as a as a small child. Um, I kind of, you know, I went to church. Family, you know, we, we went to church every Sunday. And, you know, I learned all the basic stories in Sunday school, you know, about Noah's Ark and Jonah and the whale and learned about this man they called Jesus. And But I didn't really form a deep, intimate relationship with him. And I guess you can say that the veil was not really lifted over my eyes until, you know, I was about the age of uh, 21, 22 years old. And as a child, I was a very awkward young man. I was very, you know, I was very small, tasty white kid, scrawny kid, you know, and I, I got picked on a lot. I was a sensitive kid. I faced a lot of rejection in my younger years. And uh, a lot of that played into, you know, some of the insecurities that I that I ended up having as I got into my teenage years. The downward spiral in my life, I guess you can say, started probably about a year or two after my parents had separated and uh, they had gotten a divorce. My, my mother had, had left my father. Thank God she just moved a couple miles away. So they stayed in the same town and we were able to see them both. 
You know, we stayed in my mom's house half the time, my dad's house half the time, but, you know, I started uh, using, you know, playing that to my advantage and trying to work my parents against each other. And, you know, I just started to kind of just, I don't know, act out in certain ways. I guess you can couple the fact that, you know, my parents were divorced now and, you know, I had faced a lot of rejection growing up and I still, you know, I had a couple friends here and there, but, you know, really, I mean, I, I wasn't, the, you know, Mr. Popular. I would get, you know, bullied from time to time, but I would lash out too, you know, I didn't let people bully me, me too much. I mean, I <laughs> I ended up in uh, in school suspension several times for, you know, trying to fight people and, you know, but I, as I became, oh, I don't know, about 15, 16 years old, you know, I was in the, you know, periodically smoking cigarettes and started getting in a little bit of alcohol. And then, you know, my senior year, I actually joined a rock group with several guys. Um, I'm from Lexington, North Carolina. And a lot of these guys were from Lexington, North Carolina, but they were in college, but they would come home on the weekends. One of them was going to Carolina, Chapel Hill. Another couple of them were going to NC State. One of them was going to Lenore, Ryan, and Hickory. They would come home. They found out that I knew how to play bass guitar, so I became their bassist. And um, here I was, a senior in high school, and I started to, you know, that kind of started to give me a little bit more confidence in myself. But, you know, I was joining these guys on the weekends, and I'd go to some of these college campuses on the weekends, and we would play at some of these frat houses at these frat parties. Um, there were some weekends, you know, I would be able to get in the bars because I was with the band and I was playing with the band and, you know, and so just my, my partying lifestyle started to increase. Well, by the time I, I graduated high school, I, I ended up attending the uh, local community college for a couple of years. And when I got into the community college, you know, a lot of people liked me and accepted me and um, you're no longer around the, the cliquish people that you're around all through elementary school and middle school and high school. So a lot of people don't really know who you are. You know, I found out that I was a pretty likable guy. But I, I kind of still was, I was leaning towards the more negative crowds because I was, you know, I was already in this rock group and I was already doing some things I shouldn't be doing. And so in college, you know, I started, you know, getting into drugs. I started getting into uh, smoking weed and popping pills. And then that led, you know, of course, weed, marijuana is a huge gateway to other drugs. I started experimenting with hallucinogenics, you know, acid, mushrooms. You know, I would experiment with a little cocaine from time to time and eventually got into doing ecstasy. And it just started, it, you know, things just started to get crazy. My life was spiraling out of control very quickly. And by my third year of college, I transferred to uh, Guilford Tech. It's a technical community college. I was on, I was in their Jamestown campus and I was living, I was uh, renting a room from a guy in the High Point, Greensboro area. But uh, I just stopped caring about a lot of things. I even kind of, I left the band, kind of mutual at that point. I, I think they didn't want me anymore. I didn't want to be in there anymore. Um, I was in the just girls and partying and sexual relationships with multiple women at this point. And I really couldn't even hold down a job. I just wanted to, I just wanted to play all day long. I just, no work, all play. Just wanted to party all day, smoke weed all day, drive around and, you know, find trouble to get into. And so I lived that lifestyle pretty heavily from, you know, roughly around 18 years old to 
probably about 22 years old. About four years there that my life was just taking an awful turn. And, and by the time I was even 21 years old, I mean, I was breaking into places. I was, you know, because I didn't have a job. I couldn't hold down a job. So if I needed money for drugs, I was robbing people. I was uh, breaking and entering into, you know, homes and, you know, even like using a credit card to get into somebody's house and finding money or finding merchandise that I could take and pot off the streets and go get more drugs. And I was just, I was uh, lying, deceiving, manipulating. Uh, even the circles that I was running in more and more were wanting to have less and less to do with me. And, you know, so I, I was in a bad place. And I remember, you know, I would talk to my dad every now and then. I would call home. I was living with a girl at the time. And I, I would call home from every now and then. And my dad, I'd talk to him. And again, he knew what I was doing. Um, and he would just tell me, he'd say, son, I'm praying for you. I just want you to know that there's a lot of people praying for you, people you don't even know. People in other cities and states that you've never even met are praying for you. And I remember one day I got off the phone with him and, and I heard him saying that to me. And I went outside and I, you know, I, I went on a walk. It was a very beautiful day outside. I remember just blue skies, a couple little white puffy clouds up in the sky. I was smoking a cigarette, walking down the street, just thinking about my life and how bad things have gotten. And I remember looking up and saying, you know, Lord, if you're really there, if you really exist, if, if, if all these prayers that all these people are praying, you know, if you really hear them, then I want you to hear my prayer and I want you to prove it to me. I want, I want you to reveal yourself to me. God, if you're really there, you know, and at the time, I didn't even know. I didn't even know if I was talking to God or if there was a God listening. But I just, I just called out to him and I, and I, and, and I was very sincere about it. I said, I want to see. I want to see. I'm sick of my life. I'm sick of how I'm living. I want you to turn this ship around. I'm ready. I'm ready to, to, to grow up and to get my life moving in a better direction. I don't want to live like this anymore. So that was when I was about 21. Well, the changes that started to take place in my life were almost immediate. They really were. And all through that next year, I, you know, well, first of all, you know, within weeks of that prayer, I was able to land a very good job. That's a whole other story about that job that I got because you had people who had graduated from college. You know, people were applying for this job all over in multiple cities from all around. And the positions were limited. It was paying very well. I never finished college. And how I got that job, that's just a whole other story in itself. But I got a very good job. And I actually started um, cleaning up my act a little bit. Now, I was still doing drugs. I was still partying and stuff. I still, you know, uh, you know, having sexual interactions with other women and whatnot. But I was, <laughs> I was still at the same time praying. And I could see the Lord making changes in my life. And I, and that, you know, I became a lot more honest in my dealings with people. I learned the gift of hard work and what it meant to be a real man and to discipline myself or, you know, and um, work a steady job and start paying for my own stuff. So at this point now, I'm living and working in Winston-Salem. And all throughout that year, I had been talking to God. But I still wasn't sold on this Jesus guy. Again, I remember learning about him growing up. But I thought maybe that there's more, maybe there's more than one path to God. Maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist or if you're 
you know, this or that. Maybe all God really cares is that you just believe in him some way and that you just have faith in him some way. And I would get in conversations with my dad throughout the year and he would try to challenge me. He would say, well, no, you know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes on to me or unto the Father except for me. And so, you know, he was planting seeds of faith in my life, challenging me with scriptures and here and there throughout that following year. But I was still, you know, just, I was just was not there yet. Well, while I was living and working in Winston-Salem, I had become very good friends with a pretty big weed dealer. He was uh, this, this big guy, you know, lived in the hood, right there in the ghetto in Winston-Salem. And a lot of people came and, and bought, you know, weed from him and various other drugs from time to time. Um, I called him Pratt Dog. That was kind of his nickname. Like we, we, we called him Pratt Dog. And, and so uh, Pratt Dog, you know, he was just, like I said, he's this big guy and we became friends. Uh, you know, here I am, this, you know, scrawny white guy, you know, and, and then this guy, I'm hanging out with him in his crib in the ghetto, you know, and people are coming in from time to time and they're, you know, you, you got these people walking in, real shady, dark looking figures, you know, with their hoods on, hoodies on and they're coming in and they're pulling guns out of their waist and putting them on the table to sit down and do deals with him. And I'm just sitting there, you know, high, uh, just watching TV, just trying to mind my own business while they're taking care of business. And, you know, and then these guys get up, they tuck their guns back in their pants, they walk out. And, you know, me and Pratt Dog were just sitting there hanging out. And, you know, he and I would get in conversations about the Lord. And he would tell me, he, I remember, he would tell me, you know, he'd, he'd be like, you know, he'd be like, you know, Matt, you know, I used to mess people up, man. I used to put people in the hospital, you know, he's like, I don't do that anymore. As though, like, he was telling me how the Lord was working in his life. <laughs> but here he was, I mean, he's still, a, he's still a, a big dealer. And, you know, one night I had had a connection with this guy in High Point who had come down from New York City. I believe with a shipment of ecstasy pills and he said he could get us a big uh, chunk of them for about $10 a pill. Well, back then, I don't know what it is now, but back then ecstasy was about $25, $30 a pill. So if somebody tells you they got, they, they're going to give you some X pills for $10 a pill, well, you're going to go do it. So I told Pratt Dog about it. We jumped in my car. We drove down to High Point. We met with this guy. We bought a little shipment off of him. We drove back to his house. And then uh, I took a pill, and he took a couple pills, and I said, uh, well, let me back up. He kind of wanted to spend some time with his girl that night. I said, all right, well, I'm gonna, I guess I'm going to go hang out by myself and head back to my apartment. So before I left, I said, you know, he had this huge movie collection, and I said, you mind if I borrow one of these movies? And he said, sure, yeah, go ahead. And he pointed on top. He actually had one out that he had been watching. It was sitting on top of his big screen TV. And he said, that one right there is a good one. And I looked at it, and it was a two-disc set, a four-hour movie, three- or four-hour movie. It was called Jesus of Nazareth. And I said, all right, sure, why not? So I grabbed the movie, Jesus of Nazareth. I went home. I was on ecstasy watching Jesus of Nazareth by myself in my living room. I watched it till like, I mean, it was probably like midnight, one, you know, midnight, probably one o'clock in the morning, maybe, I don't know. By the time the movie was over, you know, it's four o'clock in the morning. I'm still high as a kite, but 
there was something in that story, his walk and the things that he spoke to people, the parables and the, you know, and, and what led up to his crucifixion. And then, you know, when he, when he died on that cross and he bled out and then he, you know, was risen from the dead three days later and how he walked with these guys again and just explained everything that happened. And it just, it just clicked with me. It just clicked with me. And I don't like to tell people this story because I feel like people will judge and say, oh, well, yeah, you were hot. You were on ecstasy. Of course. Yeah, of course you you saw something. You know, your mind was playing tricks on you. But no, it's not, it, was, it wasn't even that. The drugs aside, just the story itself and about, my, you know, just my depravity, my complete depravity, my sin nature, just being the fallen creature that I am and just seeing how... I could have never done what he did and how I needed him. I needed him to do what he did. It just all completely clicked that he had to do what he did. He had to. Man, mankind had no other way. There was no other way within ourselves that we were going to be able to have this restored, redemptive relationship with the holy, perfect, living God. Jesus had to do what he did. And it just clicked with me. And all these scriptures that my dad had challenged me with and that I had read and um, up to this point, everything just all started to, to make sense. And it all just, you know, even even the next morning, you know, I woke up and I remember as those next few days and the next few weeks went on, like everything looked different. And now, you know, now I'm totally sober, but just everything was different. And I started to even, you know, I'd see things on TV or, or other movies and shows, and, and I started to see the deceptions laced throughout, you know, uh, humanity and, and, and how the interactions with people. And I just saw life in a totally different way. And I think about that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, you know, and it gets to that part, it says, was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It, I remember hearing that song weeks after that experience with the Lord, and it just clicked with me. For the first time ever, I really knew what it was like to really see. I always used to identify and think that they were talking about it was a physical blindness, and now I can physically see, but no, there was something going on in the spirit realm to where the veil was lifted from my darkened eyes, and I could now see the truth in just all things. And the Word of God became alive to me, and I would read it, and it, it was like it was speaking directly to me. And I'm telling you, man, I don't know why the Lord would save a wretch like me, but He did. And He exposed Himself to me, and even in my darkest hours, when I'm carelessly living my life, uh, messed up and on drugs, even in that time, He would speak to me. But it just proves His love. It shows that, you know, He doesn't care. He doesn't care who you are. He doesn't care what you've done. He, he will meet you where you're at. And that's how, I, that is the time when I began walking with the Lord. And I'll tell you, I, you know, I didn't just, I wasn't just delivered from drugs all in that moment. I mean, there were times where I still slipped up and it took me probably about two or three years into my faith walk from that point to completely get rid of that, that kind of a lifestyle. I tripped and stumbled a lot, but I knew what the truth was. I knew what he wanted for me. I knew he wanted a better life for me and that his love for me was just unconditional and that he was going to just be there with me and walk with me all the way through it. And he did. And even to this day, you know, you, you continue to 
to go on through your life and you, you, you feel like you reach one point with the Lord and then all of a sudden he peels back more layers and you see more dirt and just continue to realize your need for him. That's how I came to know the Lord and I'm very grateful for that experience with him. So um, whatever happened to Pratt Dog? You know, I kept up with him from time to time and I do, you know, the last time I had seen him, as far as I know, he had gotten very much out of the lifestyle that he was in as well. And I think he has, uh, he was he was in the middle of, of trying to start his own towing business. He wanted to open up a towing service and he had gotten a trailer and everything. So we lost connection, but I really feel like he was moving in the same direction I was. If I had to put my money on it, I'd say that I'll, I'll bet he's living completely 100% for the Lord now. Big thanks to Matt Crucial Sliman. To learn more about him, check out his website, crucialbeats.com. There you can also learn more about him and the work he does in music and ministry. You can even land yourself a free download of the album, The End of the World. I had a chance to have a conversation with my double brother. If you don't remember him, check out episode one when you have a chance. But he was one who was subjected to some severe deception and he's going to talk about it right now you know just that that feeling you get when you are in in one accord with believers worshiping the lord you know and how that fulfilled purpose that feeling you get right there's no other way to explain it really it kind of made me look back when i was getting high as to that drugs are kind of the counterfeit of that true fellowship that you have with believers and with god you know what I mean? It fills that void. It gives you a temporary, very temporary, I might add, a feeling of being fulfilled, feeling satisfied. But that obviously goes away. But when it goes away, you're not left empty. It's kind of hard to explain. If empty is at a zero and the drugs put you at a 10 feeling, when you're empty, when the drugs wear off or what have you, when you come down, you're not at a zero anymore. You're not back to baseline. You're below baseline. It's not like you come, you come off the drugs and you go back to neutrality. You go into a negative emotional state and then you try to get back to where you were when you were feeling good and high and the drug just doesn't, it doesn't take you back to that feeling you got the first couple times. It, it's lacking. And then after so many years of doing that, maybe even months for some people, you never get the high again. You just go back to zero. You can imagine if you, when you're coming down or you've come off the drug or you, you know, you come off the high and you're at a negative 10 and you do your drug and you're at a zero now and you're stuck in that perpetual deception of, oh, if I could just get some drugs and do more drugs, I feel okay again. I feel great again. But in the meantime, when you were getting high and doing everything you could to find that drug, you were burning bridges with people in your life. You know what I mean? with your relationships and such. With your family, you're losing trust. You know, maybe they have given up on you and, you know, you had betrayed them because everything you're doing is to chase that drug. But see, when you're in fellowship with the Lord, whenever, you, whenever you're seeking more of Him, you're not burning bridges. You're not, at the same time, destroying your life while you're seeking the Lord. 
it's only fulfilling your life. It's only improving and enriching your life. The more you seek God, the more you get to know Him, the more you're in fellowship with other believers in one accord, your life's being simultaneously enriched. It's the exact opposite with the drugs. While you're seeking that drug to fulfill that need, to fill that void, to feel that high again, which never comes, you're simultaneously destroying everything in your life. And some people come to the end of their rope and they go, you know what, I've been deceived by this drug. And what the drug is, it's a big tool of the enemy. It's a big tool of the devil to destroy your life because it not only destroys your life, it destroys everyone who is a part of your life as well, you know? What makes you say that it's a tool of the devil? You, For example, if you're getting high, all of a sudden you're, you're confident. You're not really confident. You just feel you're confident or you feel you're so smart and you're so brilliant or you have these great ideas. Well, if you are so confident and so smart and filled with such brilliant ideas, why is the drug addict's life washing down the drain rapidly? Why is everyone around them disappointed in that person? Why is that person losing jobs, losing relationships, losing their life? You know what I mean? And it's mind, it's just mind-altering, and it turns you away from the true God. Because some drugs, some psychedelics, you take them, and you're deceived to the notion that your mind has been opened. You really feel that when you're high. That your mind is so open, and you can understand everything now more clearly. You know, you have a, a you have more knowledge of things. You have more insight to things. But it's the opposite. You don't have more insight. You're more clouded. You're more deceived. It's only when you come into a relationship with God and the Word cleanses you that you really start to see clearly and think clearly. Because God's given you that spirit. You know what I mean? The sound mind. And the drugs don't do that. They fry your brain. I know it sounds passe to say that, but they fry your brain. Everything you think you're getting with that drug, you're not. You're getting the exact opposite. And when you come to God, and when you come to the Lord and accept Jesus as your Savior, you might not even know what you're getting, but at least after you've walked with God and He's been a part of your life, you're actually getting more than you could have ever thought or imagined. It wasn't until after I accepted Christ as my Savior and was in true fellowship with God and true fellowship with believers that I could look back on my life and compare the two lifestyles I had, one of a drug addict, that only uh, seeks pleasure for myself and didn't really care about anyone else. And my new life, which I was born again into, of that, which was to please God, which was to live for God, which was to serve God by serving others. Only then could I really look back in my, on my former life and go, wow, I was believing a lie. I was believing that being high and hanging out with drug addicts and doing things that drug addicts do, which is really nothing productive, that that was a good thing and that was eye-opening and that was enlightening to me when in reality I was being lied to and deceived the whole time by the enemy. If you look at the drug statistics now, one of the number one drugs, the biggest drug epidemic, is not even quote-unquote illegal drugs anymore. One of the most heavily abused drugs is pharmaceutical drugs, oxycotton, and all those opiate-derived painkillers. They're not illegal. I mean, they're illegal for you unless you have a prescription, but they're manufactured and tested and marketed 
legally. They're legal drugs. And that is what more people are addicted to now. Even even the youth where I live here in Orange County, California. I mean, it's drug, prescription drugs are an ep- epidemic here. I was talking to a sheriff who was a friend of mine, and he was saying that we here, even in Orange County, we have so many drug overdoses on these opiates. Prescription drugs, it's not talked about. It's kind of the uh, the underbelly of Orange County, you know. And then when they can't get the drugs, the opiates, because they start off, because it looks like a pill. It is a pill, but it's highly addictive. It's basically heroin. So when they can't finagle to get the prescription illegally, they go straight to heroin. It used to be sell marijuana as the gateway drug. There is no gateway now. There's no gate. It's just an open field. I can't get my Oxycontin. But I know a heroin dealer down the road, and I'll get it from him. I'll just get straight heroin. And kids are just getting hooked straight on heroin or opiate-derived pills. Did you ever feel like you were, when, when on drugs, interacting with a darker spiritual realm? All the time. When I was using drugs, which mainly was uh, methamphetamine, speed, I'd be high. When you're, and if, if there's anyone out there who, who used meth, or was addicted to mess. When I tell you about the shadow people, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. That's a very common term among meth users, the shadow people. Because you, you see shadow people everywhere, Jason. You see them outside your door, across the street, standing there. And if you walk, they walk, they kind of parallel you. You'll see shadow people sitting in trees. The hair on my arms are standing up right now. <laughs> wow. When you're driving your car, you'll see a shadow person right outside your car window with you. What else could that be? Okay, someone who might want to debunk that there is an unseen spiritual realm, they'll say, oh, you're you're obviously sleep deprived. I'll give you that much. Okay, you're obviously under the influence. I'll give you that, your mind's altered. I'll give you that. When you know there is an unseen spiritual realm, of wickedness and darkness that rules over this world, then you know and you can believe that. I mean, I would go outside in the backyard, I would be high, and I, I, could, I could sense that there just was demonic presence with me. The sad part is, for me anyways, you kind of just learn to accept it. You kind of brush it off. They don't necessarily attack you from your you know, perspective. You can't sense, oh, they're, they're attacking me. You just, you just sense that they're there. But in any drug addict's life, chaos is sure to follow. And that's what the enemy wants. He wants you not in fellowship with God. He wants you to not be in fellowship with anyone else. He wants you to worship the devil through the drugs. And his spirit realm is with you. So yeah, to answer your question, yeah, I could totally, you could totally sense the demonic realm with you. I know, I know, it's the worst part of the show. But when this episode ends, there's a whole bunch more to listen to at talesoftherevolution.com. You can download any or all of the episodes right there. talesoftherevolution.com. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And more Tales of the Revolution are coming, which means I need to hear your story. So reach out to me. Send me an email at our website, talesoftherevolution.com, down at the bottom, or just send me a note, jason 
at talesoftherevolution.com. Again, this episode is the first in a series on the topic of deception. I've decided to call this episode Crucial Deception. Until next time, don't be deceived and live the revolution.